Let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, we come to you not out of mere habit or custom, but out of a real sense of our need that you would help us. We don't want to be wasting our time for these next 35 or 40 minutes, but we want you to speak to us and tell us what we need to hear. And perhaps you need to shake us out of some apathy and lethargy. Perhaps you have a word of salvation that someone here needs to hear. Whatever you have for us, we pray that you would give us ears that we might hear your voice. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Of all the things that have changed in the Western world in the last 250 or 300 years, one of the most dramatic changes is one of those things that we rarely think about. The most dramatic changes are the ones that have become so common that we don't even know that they have changed. The change I'm talking about is not with technology or medicine or transportation, but a change of attitude. And the change is this. By and large, people in the Western world no longer fear to stand before God. It is said that when Jonathan Edward preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to the congregation there in Enfield, Connecticut, that members of the congregation began lifting their feet off of the wooden floors because as Edwards painted such a graphic picture of dangling before the pit of hell with barely a spider's web to suspend you in the air, the people were so terrified of falling into that dreadful abyss, they began to lift their feet off the ground. I think if Edwards were to preach that sermon today, he would not be met with the same response. There would be howls of fire and brimstone preacher, perhaps even be labeled as verbally abusive. Many still fear death, that's for sure, or at least we fear the painful process of dying. For many people, it's not what's on the other side, it's just the the process of getting there, but very few people you meet during the week actually fear to stand before God. If they were to be honest and speak through a list of their three, four, top five fears in life, perhaps there's some phobia, some heights, some spiders, some snakes, some bears, some sharks. We have almost all of those here in North Carolina, it seems. Maybe there would be more legitimate fears of cancer, of something happening to our children. But for very few people, would they think to mention the fear that one day they will stand before the living God? If they believe in a God, and most people still say that they do, it is not a God that strikes fear. It is a God who exists to help us with our plans and our purposes. A God who is very sympathetic to us, simply trying to do our best, being basically decent people. 
This has not always been the case. That's why I say it's one of those changes that is hard to see because it's so ordinary and yet it would have been thought extraordinary. For well over a thousand years in the Christian West, it was an attitude that could simply be assumed by preachers or priests or churches. And they knew they could tap into it, sometimes for good, sometimes maybe in a manipulative way, but they understood that people feared the judgment to come. I think it's safe to say that hardly anyone today, especially if you are not steeped in the Bible, thinks about the judgment seat of God. And even for most of us who are steeped in the Bible, we rarely think of the judgment seat of God. I'm sure most of you have been to a funeral before where the person being eulogized had no obvious Christian commitment or not one with any consistency or no pretense of faith at all. And yet, when they are spoken of, does anyone ever speak of the fear of standing before the living God? Hardly. The person is always remembered as a nice man, a very kind woman. Not perfect, it may be said, but a loving person really kind to his or her family. And everyone there, no matter their faith or any faith at all, will take great comfort to know that the deceased is now enjoying steak and cheesecake in heaven or fishing in a well-stocked pond or cheering on whatever your team is. And a good time was had by all. Hebrews 9.27 may be one of the most countercultural, and one of the most forgotten verses in our age. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Do you believe that? Do we really believe that? If so, it ought to motivate us. It ought to shape what we do. If that's true, why are churches playing around with entertainment. If that's true, why, why are we so timid in evangelism? If that's true, why do we approach God with such trifling ease? Do we really believe that when we die, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? We will be weighed in the balance of God's justice and many, we fear too many, will be found wanting. Follow along as I read from our passage this evening, Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers 
of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and with a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son... Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored. 
Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Once again, the basic structure of this chapter is like the first four chapters, but now there is a further variation. In chapters one, two, and three, we have the basic pattern. There's a problem, and then God's people, whether it's Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pass the test, and then they are promoted. Then we saw last week in chapter four a variation on that theme. There is a problem. Nebuchadnezzar fails the test, he learns from that failure, and then he is re-promoted or he is restored to his greatness. Sometimes we need that extra step. We don't get it right. Nebuchadnezzar didn't get it right, but he learned. Here in chapter 5, again, we have a problem, but then the paths diverge. Daniel passes the test. He gives the interpretation, and once again, he is promoted. But down here... You have Belshazzar. He encounters the problem. He fails the test. And immediately that evening, he is killed. We can look at this story in five acts or five steps. First, the king parties. Second, the king trembles. Third, the queen remembers. Four, Daniel interprets. And five, God judges. First, the king parties. We are introduced to this King Belshazzar. It's as if the curtain had closed at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's life, and then there's a bit of uh, a scene change, and now the curtains are pulled open with a dramatic sweep, and there we have a new king. Who was this Belshazzar? Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. after an illustrious 43-year reign. Three more kings quickly followed after him before Nabonidus took the throne in 556, and he served until 539 when Babylon, here in this passage, was overrun by the Persians. Belshazzar was a co-regent. That is, he was ruling in place of Nabonidus, his father, who was out fighting a multi-year campaign and he took residence in another part of the kingdom. So here, back in the capital, you have Belshazzar. So in one sense, he's not the king and yet very rightly he is called the king. He has authority, he's living in the palace. He is a co-regent with Nabonidus. That's why we have this interesting phrase, you ever wonder, I will make you third in the kingdom. Well, what happened to second? Well, he's second. That's why he says to Daniel, I'll make you third. Belshazzar was possibly Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. 
if Nabonidus married a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, then this language which we have often of son and Nebuchadnezzar is a father can refer simply to a political successor. In the Bible, father-son doesn't always have to mean that the literal son immediately of you, my father. It may simply mean a descendant in your lineage, or it may just mean one who is my successor. Think of Elijah calling Elisha his son. They had no physical relationship to one another, and yet Elijah was his father, Elisha his son, because one was the successor. One took up the mantle of the other. This chapter then starts with the opening of the curtain to find King Nebuchadnezzar is gone, and there in his place, King Belshazzar, and he is throwing a gigantic party. The throne room, scholars tell us, was 52 meters by 17 meters, so an Olympic-sized pool all the way down and 17 meters across. So it's a big room, but still, to fit in a 1,000 people, it would have been a crowded, uh, a hopping, happening party. And he takes the holy things. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, came and he led the people of Judah and they brought them into Babylon. And when they conquered the temple, they took, as was their custom, some of the holy things. And so they took the treasured possessions from the temple, the most valuable, the most sacred possessions where the, the priestly duties would be performed. And there they were in some, I suppose not a China cabinet, some Babylonian cabinet there with all of their finest things. And here in this moment, he says, aha, I got an idea. This party's gonna be lit. I think that's what the kids say. And we are gonna bring out the golden vessels now, you have to understand, this was not typical Babylonian policy. They were shrewd rulers and politicians, and you don't usually keep your conquered people in line by sort of thumbing your nose at their gods and their deities, trying to poke them in the eye. Besides, the Babylonians were polytheists. They believed in many gods and goddesses. So for all they knew, they said, well, we're happy to have the God of Jerusalem on our side and we have his holy things. So this was not like the Babylonians to go out of their way to anger people with their own deities. But here's Belshazzar. Maybe he's drunk. Certainly he wants to show that he is every bit the man that Nebuchadnezzar was. Sort of reminds you of when Rehoboam says, oh, my, my father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. I'm a real man. Bring out the golden vessels from Jerusalem. It was a show-off move. Defiance, provocation, showing contempt for God's stuff and therefore contempt for God himself. It was not a light thing. It was an act of audacious hubris, a piece of rebellion against the true God. Of course, no one there in the court really believed in Yahweh, the God of Israel. But they might have paid some general respect, but not Belshazzar. No, take out the golden things and we'll use them for our drunken revelry. But little did Belshazzar know that though that God may seem to be a long ways away in Jerusalem, and they, he may seem to be the God of a conquered people, he was not a conquered God. People often misunderstand that when God's people are punished, 
They think therefore their God is a light, airy thing to be trifled with. We'll talk to the Philistines after they captured the ark, how that went for them. Many people even today will look and say, well, look at all the the faults of the church. Look at all of the failings of these Christians. And that's true. There's plenty to go around, but it is not the same as saying that God has failed. Or even if the Christians are sometimes to be taken less seriously, God never is. The king parties, and then the king trembles. No sooner had the golden vessels and the praise to the gods of gold and silver and wood and stone passed from his lips, than a mysterious hand appears and begins to write on the plaster of the wall. The finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments would now write on this pagan king's wall. Doesn't happen very often in the Bible. You can count on it. If God's finger is writing something, you better pay attention. How quickly things change for Belshazzar. His color changed. His head is filled with dread. His arms and legs fail him. His his knees begin to buckle. A moment ago, he was full of thoughts of himself. And now his thoughts alarm him. He was raising a cup of wine, and now those very same limbs give out. He was strutting around as the great king of Babylon the Great, and now his knees begin to knock. Or, you might even translate that last phrase differently, literally, the joints of his loins were loosed. And some scholars think, and it's not a stretch to imagine, nor is it just middle school sort of hijinks, that this is a euphemism that he lost control of his bladder. He's a terrified little king. And what do you do when you're scared? Well, when anyone is scared, they turn to their religion. You all turn to your religion in a time of crisis When tragedy strikes, when fear consumes you, what's the first thing you think of? Well, if we're thinking like Christians, we'll think of prayer. But for too many people, the first thing they think of is, do I have enough money to cover that? Do I have the right insurance? What can science do? What can doctors do? And God, of course, uses science and money and insurance and all of the rest. But where is your ultimate hope? For Belshazzar, just like for Nebuchadnezzar, before he changed, fear tragedy, dread meant one thing. Call the enchanters. Bring in the astrologers. Bring in the Chaldeans, this class of elite priestly sort of wise men. That's his religion. That's his faith. He promises them purple clothes, the clothing of royalty, a chain of gold, and you will be number three in the kingdom. But of course, as we've seen time and again, no one can help him. This so-called enlightened class didn't turn out to be all that enlightened. Sometimes our elites are not all that elite. And once again, his religion lets him down. You can count on it. Idols always let you down. Football will not save you. Academics will not save you. Music will not save you. Sex will not save you. Your reputation will not save you. False gods always fail. 
But here comes the queen. The queen remembers. This queen, verse 10, is likely the queen mother. You can see that. There is a note there, footnote, or the queen mother. That is the wife of Nabonidus. Remember, we've already seen that Belshazzar's wives and concubines, verse 3, are already in this drunken revelry. So his wives, his queen was likely already there. And only the queen mother could come into the king like this unbidden. Remember Esther? She was the queen and she couldn't come into the king's presence unless he deigned her with the golden scepter. So very likely this is the queen mother. She comes in and she's been around long enough to remember, wasn't there a man? He was very much like your name, Belshazzar. That's right, Belteshazzar. Daniel was his Hebrew name. He's now an old man. If you do the math, he's likely 80, 85 years old. He was enjoying life in Bruce's community when he was called upon out of retirement to make one final interpretation. Listen, in all seriousness, you never know if your most important work for the Lord is still ahead of you. At 80 years old, 85, 90, 95, what the Lord has for you. Here was Daniel. And remember, chapter 6 is coming up next. He still has to have a night with the lions. I remember there was a man. He was full of light and understanding and wisdom, the queen says. The spirit of the gods was in him. He was exalted by your father, King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 12. He had an excellent spirit. May it be said of each of us, whatever work we're called to do. Now, we are not going to have all of Daniel's gifts and abilities. Not many of us will be elevated to the sort of position that he had. But we can do at least some of what Daniel did and be men and women and children marked with an excellent spirit. That means he was faithful. He told the truth. He served Nebuchadnezzar with integrity this was a man you wanted to keep around. It's tempting to think that Belshazzar considered him washed up. After all, he brings in all of the astrologers and the enchanters and the Chaldeans, and he never thinks to bring in Daniel, and we'll see in just a moment. He knew who Daniel was. I think, oh, that old man? Been there, done that. I don't need another Daniel episode here. But don't think that your days are over. Surely as an old man, Daniel was not fleet of foot. He wasn't strong of body. He was no longer the handsome youth. But he had the wisdom and the spirit that got better with age. May that be a lesson for all of us to pursue the things that only get better as we get older. Godly character. Wisdom, insight, integrity. The queen remembers, and then step four, act four, Daniel interprets. Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, all right, Daniel, I've heard about you. It says something about the king that he had heard of Daniel, and he never thought to call him in. He was done with this guy. Maybe there's even a hint of cynicism here in verse 13. You are that 
Daniel. And notice he doesn't describe him immediately as one of the great ones who saved my father's neck. No, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. That is, he's barely better than a slave. Oh yes, he's one of those conquered people. He's one of those exiles. That Hebrew Daniel. Go ahead, he says. Take your shot. I'll give you the same reward. Daniel responds in verse 17. I don't want your reward. The gifts of God are not for sale. This isn't, I'm an old man, what do I need? Save it. But nevertheless, I will tell you what the handwriting means. But before he does that, notice verse 18, he recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, unlike some of the other times, he has a little speech to make. Before he's going to tell Belshazzar what this all means, he needs to remind him of something. And so he recounts the story of Nebuchadnezzar, his greatness, verses 18 through 19, the peoples, the nations, the languages, he was exalted, people came, they feared him. He did whatever he wanted. He wanted to kill people, they're killed. Wants them to live, they live. He wants to exalt them, they're exalted. He wants them to be brought low, they're humbled. But then, Daniel says, there was a turn in the story. The very king who could cast people low refused to be brought low himself. Verse 20, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down. Oh, remember Belshazzar? Yes, it seemed that the great King Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of all nations, but there was one who was, he was in charge of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's the most high God, Daniel says. That's my God. And until he learned the lesson of humility, he walked around and he had the dew of heaven on his skin and he acted for a season like an animal until he learned the lesson of humility. And the lesson of humility is this. God is great, I am not. God is great, I am not. And Nebuchadnezzar learned it. God calls the shots. God does as he pleases. God sets up. God tears down. See, the king thought the whole world would have to give account to him, to the king of Babylon. But Daniel reminds him, oh no, there is a far greater king in heaven and you, O oh king of Babylon, have to give an account to him. Look at verse 22. This is an absolutely tragic verse. Can you feel the weight, the poignancy of it? And you, his son. So whatever, if it's a physical son, grandson, if it's a successor, you, you are in his lineage, Belshazzar. You, you have heard of all of this. You, his son, have not humbled your heart. And then here's the, the deep tragedy. Though... You knew all this. You, you've heard the stories, Belshazzar. How could you not? How could you not know about the seven times when 
Nebuchadnezzar went crazy, whether those were weeks or months or years or seasons. Of course, everyone in Babylon would have known of this, and you knew of it, Belshazzar. You knew the lesson of humility, and you refused to learn it for yourself. There's no excuse. It would be a tragic thing for some of you, for some of your kids, for people you love, for people we know, for the very people sitting in the pews this evening, to grow up in the church, to hear the things of God, to be warned, to sing songs of Jesus, and still your hearts grow hard and you refuse to learn the lesson of humility. Might God be saying to one of us, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. You heard it. You had Bible studies. It was there in your songs and your prayers and your sermons and you sat there week after week, year after year. You knew it all and you didn't care. Verse 23 is just as dramatic. Daniel continues with his convicting diatribe, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have partaken of the wine with your lords and wives and concubines from the holy things from Jerusalem, and you praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood and stone, and they don't see, they don't hear, they don't know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You took the vessels, you drank from those cups, you praised the gods of gold and silver, you raised your hand against the God of the ages, the God who holds your very breath. The God who gives you life. Wouldn't our attitude be different, our prayers be different, our worship be different if we could remember that simple truth? Our ways are in his hands and we breathe because God gives us breath. You're breathing right now. And science can tell you all the things that are happening with your heart and your lungs and your brain, all that's true. But this is more true. You're breathing because God gives you breath. And Belshazzar forgot it, for he never learned it. And Daniel was there to remind him. The God he was thumbing his nose at was the very God who held his life in his hand. A God not to be trifled with. And so he finally comes to the interpretation these strange words are layered with meaning. You probably have in your Bible some footnotes which help explain what these words mean. On one level, each of these words can be interpreted as money, a mina, a shekel, and a perez is a halves. So two minas, a shekel, and a half shekel. You could interpret it, which is a way of saying your loose change to me. But there's another layer of meaning, and this is the one that Daniel brings out, and you can see it in your footnote in the Bible. Mene, 
sounds like the word for numbered. Tekel sounds like the word for weighed. And Perez has a, a double meaning. It sounds like the word to be divided because the kingdom is divided, that is taken from him and given to another. And it also sounds like the word for the Persians because the kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians. In any effect, the meaning of the handwriting on the wall is clear and it's given in that famous phrase which I'm so grateful the ESV retains. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You're a lightweight, Mr. Big Shot. This was a day of reckoning for Belshazzar, which brings us to the final act, God judges. Belshazzar was weighed in the balance and he was not a diamond in the rough. He was a cracked pot, a lightweight, a little deal in a world that thought he was a great big deal. The world says you're somebody and God said before me, you ain't nobody. God will judge every man, every woman, every nation. God sees our pride. There is no blasphemy hidden from his eyes. On that very night, the night of such a joyous celebration, Super Bowl party, wedding reception, what a feast, fraternity, sorority, throwdown. On that very night, he would be called to account. He did not see the precarious position he was in. And even when Daniel showed it to him, he did not do anything about it. Daniel, of course, is promoted. It may seem meaningless that he's promoted in a kingdom that's about to be destroyed, but in God's providence, it would mean that Daniel would stick around as third in the kingdom. Even when the Persians come in, he would have a role, as we'll see next week. Daniel, of course, didn't want the honors. We already saw that in verse 17, and we can be relatively certain that Belshazzar wasn't excited to give him the honors. But in front of his guests, he had no choice. Talk about awkward. Even more awkward and tragic is the judgment that would soon fall on Belshazzar the Chaldean that very night. Judgment is coming for all of us. For Belshazzar, it came sooner than he thought. Remember, when that word of judgment and warning came to Nebuchadnezzar, we have no record of him doing anything for 12 months. And then God humbled him and gave him an opportunity to learn and to grow. But here it happens in what, minutes, hours at the most? Do not presume upon the Lord's grace. Nebuchadnezzar got 12 months, and then he got seven seasons as a wild animal to learn his lesson. Belshazzar had a few hours. Cyrus's army, led by Gobirus, was circling the city, ready to storm the capital. The days of Babylon the Great were coming to an end. Darius, or Darius the Mede, would be in charge. Say more about him next week. The Medes and the Persians were two Iranian people. Cyrus the Great conquered the Medes for the Persians. 
so they often become identified with the same empire. The Greek historian Xenophon said the city of Babylon was taken at night during a festival and that the king was slain, and that's exactly what we see here. Belshazzar was literally eating and drinking judgment to himself. Do you think Paul maybe had this story in mind when he wrote those words in 1 Corinthians 11? Be careful you do not eat and drink judgment to yourself and partake of holy things in an unholy manner. Here's the story to prove it. The handwriting was on the wall. It's now entered our lexicon. People would have heard it. They have no idea that it's come from this story in the Bible. And even worse, they have no idea that the handwriting is on the wall for all of us. Whether it comes generations from now, decades, or tonight. Proverbs 6.15 says about the wicked, calamity will come upon him suddenly in a moment. He will be broken beyond healing. We read this in Isaiah 47. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom, your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. It reminds you of Luke 12 when Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool who's greedy and has storehouses filled with his prosperity and he says, soul, he says to himself, you have plenty, you have abundance, nothing can harm you. Now is the time, eat, drink, and be merry. South Charlotte is filled with rich fools. I hope Christ's covenant is not. Are you confident? Are you confident of standing before God to be weighed in those balances? Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that to stand before God and be weighed in the balances is not a measure of do you have 15 years of good deeds versus 14 years of bad deeds to finally outweigh and you have more good things to your account. If that were the case, we would all be found wanting. Even Nebuchadnezzar, if we're to believe that he was genuinely changed, and it seems he was, he prays a covenant prayer to a covenant God, a life of rebellion, yet in a moment, because he humbled himself, and because he gave praise to the God of heaven, that if all of that is genuine and we're reading our Bibles correctly, before the judgment seat of God, he would have been found favorable. Not because he had more good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds, but because he had been brought low and he knew the only one who was worthy to be lifted high. When Christ returns, the Gospels ask, will he find faith on the earth? That was Jesus' question. When the Son of Man returns, not will you have enough good deeds to outweigh your bad, but will he find faith? Of course, faith is just another word for that flip side, repentance. The faith that 
justifies his faith alone, but it's never a faith that is alone. It's a faith that shows itself to be a changed life, a changed person. Are we like the rich fool? Eat, drink, be merry, party. The handwriting's on the wall, it will be for someone else. Or are you prepared now? Am I prepared now? Are you living such a life of integrity and faithfulness now, not presuming upon later, that to stand before the living God in all of his glory and all of his holiness will be the day of great joy for you where he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you were brought low and you lifted high the cross. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, it is a sobering reminder and we need to hear it and not shrink from it that we will all stand before your judgment seat. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. May it not be said of us that we were weighed in the balance and found wanting. Clothe us, O Lord, with the righteousness of Christ. May we be like the one in Zechariah, a, a brand plucked from the fire, clothed with new linen garments, a clean turban, brought before you to give praise to your name, humbled that we might be lifted up. In Jesus we pray, amen.